Welcome to a new Retina radio series called International Perspectives. I am Patricia Schlottmann from Organización Médica de Investigación in Buenos Aires, Argentina. On this episode of International Perspectives, we will explore practice patterns and opinions regarding diabetic macular edema. On this episode, I am joined by two guests. Catherine Crusoe-Garcher from the uh, University Hospital at Dijon, France. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Hello, Patricio. And by Adnan Tufail from Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, United Kingdom. Hello, Adnan. Uh, hi there, Patricio. And I would like to start the discussion regarding treatment selection. For patients with wet AMD, we have only one option for treating these patients, which is using anti-VEGF drugs. But for patients with diabetic macular edema, we have an option of either using the long, well-known laser, we can use the steroids, or we can use the anti-VEGF. Despite having a menu with three options, most uh, places worldwide would choose to treat patients with anti-VEGF overall, uh, despite some smaller populations being treated with uh, possibly other options. Uh, and this is usually be because When we look at the uh, safety profile and efficacy profile of the anti-VEGF, they have a great range of patients gaining a lot of vision and a very small proportion of patients losing vision. Is this something that you agree with, uh, Catherine? Yes, usually we, we consider uh, patient characteristics before selecting one treatment or another one. But in, may, in most cases, uh, anti-VEGF remains the first line treatment to treat uh, DME patients. Uh, we can have an, some alternative, especially for pseudophagic patients where steroid can be used, but uh, in most cases, anti-VEGF remains a first-line treatment. Is the same situation, Adnan, in London? Yes, it's uh, very similar. Um, we uh, are funded nationally and we have national guidance that will prefer um, anti-VEGF for DME but with a limitation of greater than 400 microns on initiation of anti-VEGF if, if it's funded by the NHS. In the private sector, people may well usually use anti-VEGF as first line for centre involving macroedema with less than 400 microns. And as in France, in pseudophagic patients, we have the option of a corticosteroid as well. And what would be um, having an option of uh, patients being treated with other forms of treatment rather than anti-VEGF? Uh, what would be your uh, selection criteria? For example, you see a patient that is pseudophagic and um, has never had any response regarding IOP to steroids. Uh, and you see the patient for the first time with macular edema above 400 microns. Adnan, how, how would you make your uh, decision on that patient? So we would make the decision based on um, the, the pseudophagic, also look at the uh, retinopathy grades, so have an understanding of that, whether or not they responded uh, to a particular intervention in the fellow eye and how they responded, their overall level of control and potential for compliance in the future. Uh, because either intervention would not um, uh, completely protect you against progressing to proliferative disease. If it was greater than 400 microns and all things being equal, given the, the better side effect profile of anti-VEGF in terms of IOP, we would still go for anti-VEGF as the initial option. Excellent. And is it the same in, in France, uh, Catherine? 
the main interest of corticosteroids is to limit to to have a lower number of injection. Uh, it is true, especially after the second one, because at the beginning you need to check the IOP, you need to check the efficacy. So after the second injection of uh, corticosteroids, then you can limit the number of visit. So for a patient who is a, a little bit reluctant for coming very often, corticosteroid can be an interesting option. One of the things that Adnan mentioned is that uh, we need to take into consideration the diabetic retinopathy status of the patient. And that probably is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Adnan, uh, this is because with anti-VEGF, you may see a regression of diabetic retinopathy that you don't see that much with the use of steroids. Is that, Catherine, something that you take into account when making a decision? Yes, of course. If you have a, a diabetic retinopathy, then probably anti-VGF is, it is one more um, argument to use uh, anti-VGF. But I, I am still uh, not confident to consider anti-VGF as a definitive treatment for diabetic retinopathy. And it is just a, a, a way to wait for laser, for instance, uh, if you have a proliferative diabetic retinopathy. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. And Adnan wants to make a comment. Please go ahead, Adnan. Yes, so I completely agree with Catherine. I think initially when we had anti-VEGF, um, there was a regression in classic ETRS retinopathy grade. But it doesn't equate to resolving capillary closure. And increasingly, studies from France and elsewhere have shown that it does not reverse the error of capillary closure. And work that we, others and we presented at Arvo this year showed uh, the progression rate, even with anti-VEGF, is significant over time in real-world uh, delivery of therapy. And it's dependent on a number of factors, including baseline uh, ETRS retinopathy grade. So um, it's useful in, in that it reduces the risk of progression but in real world, we don't give it every month. And in fact, even in Rise and Ride, where patients were given every month, about 10% eventually became proliferative. So you need to make sure you still check the peripheral retina when you uh, start these patients on treatment. And uh, as Catherine says, in the UK, if they do become proliferative, our choice would still be, uh, if they're high-risk proliferative, to go for a definitive scatter laser. Certainly, yeah. Um, we see that these patients have a change in their color photographs, but when we look at the FAs, we don't see that much of a change. So it's, it's a magic for the short term, but in the long term, patients need to be uh, treated accordingly. And certainly we will need in the future a better classification, not based on just color photographs, right? I think the classification is adequate in treatment, anti-VEGF, treat, uh, naive patients. The problem now is that classification is not good in patients with anti-VEGF. Certainly, certainly. It's not good for establishing a new um, classification of risk for that patient, which is what yeah. we use with this classification. And Adnan, you mentioned something that you have a limit probably uh, set by uh, the NICE guidelines, uh, setting a limit in the thickness of the OCT uh, for the patient to be treated with anti-VEGF. Is there a limit on visual acuity as well? No, there's no limit on visual acuity. Uh, but there is a limit on uh, thickness. However, we know from more recent DRCRnet studies on treating patients with good vision that um, you, it's reasonable to consider waiting 
um, if the patient's got um, six, nine or better vision as an option. But again, you'd, you would temper that in uh, other factors in the eye and how they um, responded to treatment in their fellow eye if they had DME as well. If it was totally up to you and the uh, NICE guidelines were to be rewritten by your criteria, would you set up a limit on visual acuity or thickness of OCT to start treatment? Do you think this may delay the start of treatment in some patients and that creates some damage in the retina? So we know that delayed, arm, delayed arms in randomized controlled trials don't do quite catch up as much. So there is a, um, if you want to optimize the treatment for the patient in front of you, it would be nice not to have a limit but to discuss the options with the patient and allow the physician and the patient to come to the right decision based on a whole number of other factors. Um, if you're going to uh, ration treatment to some extent, which is what NICE are doing, then it's not a completely unreasonable way of rationing it, even though one can argue it's a post hoc analysis of data and how they've uh, rationed the, the, the treatment. Catherine, do you have um, similar guidelines or limitations uh, to start treatment with a patient regarding visual acuity or thickness of the OCT? Well, in, in theory, we, we should wait for visual loss, but in fact, we are in a very lucky country, so we can treat all patients if we want to treat the patients. But we know that if we treat the patient too late, then the visual gain is probably good, because the visual acuity is low, but the final visual acuity remains low. So we know that if we want to have the best final visual acuity as possible, we need to treat the patient earlier. That is to say, with a better visual acuity than before. Uh, patient is not interested in the visual gain, he is interested in, in his final visual acuity. So of course we do not treat a patient with a uh, an increased retinal thickness at, uh, and uh, visual acuity at 2020, of course not, but probably we, we can treat patients earlier than before. So if we look at these, uh, there are a couple of ranibizumab studies like the Restore and the Ride and Rise, and these studies, they had one of the arms without treatment for a while, and then they started treatment. The Restore was for 12 months and the Ride and Rise was for 24 months. Of course, they received a rescue laser if needed. But the, these patients, this is the population that did not catch up or did not gain vision as fast as the other group. So that would be the uh, too late, the treatment. How long do you think it's the latest that you can treat a patient? And how much do you look into these uh, biomarkers to make a decision? Let's say a patient tells you that uh, the vision has been bad for six months, but you don't know whether the uh, uh, macular edema was there for longer. So do you change your uh, way of treating a patient if you look at the OCT and you see some changes in the ellipsoid or any other biomarkers that will you know, help you in make a better choice for the uh, treatment decision for this patient? Catherine, for example? Well, of course, we, we analyze the, the OCT and the aspect of the retina. If you have a, a very, very a huge macular edema and in fact, you have almost no retina, you have only blebs and no more retina. Uh, the risk is to have a very low visual recovery. But usually we try. Uh, 
it is very difficult to, to say that uh, the beginning of a macular edema was at that time because it can be longer. So we try, we treat the patient at least for three to five injections and we, 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 we analyze the visual acuity. If we have no visual recovery, then we stop the treatment, but we try. Okay, and Adnan, what's the uh, situation in London? So, as I said, we're slightly limited, um, but um, again, rather, rather like in France, uh, you don't make assumptions that uh, a patient um, fully understands how long they've been symptomatic for, especially if it's their worst eye. Um, and so given the data in an ideal world, I would like to initiate therapy for a symptomatic eye. It, it, it independent of the thickness of uh, central retinal thickness level. Excellent. It, it is interesting that the, uh, the NICE guidelines are based on thickness as the only biomarker, but they don't look at any other qualitative characteristic of the uh, OCT. Yeah, that was based on the, uh, their sub-analysis of the original pivotal trials um, and was clearly a way of looking at a subgroup which was most, most cost-effective. It's not to say the other groups aren't cost-effective, but it was the group that was most cost-effective. Um, and so that's the group that gets it automatically uh, for an unlimited amount on the NHS. It's not that you can't give it, but you, it wouldn't be automatically funded. Whereas for steroids, uh, ironically, there is no limit for thickness, but they do need to be pseudopagic. So, so they came up with this decision based on the analysis of the bivotal trials. Uh, did they put a limit on the um, um, HbA1c of the patients as the uh, bivotal trials? Some of them use 10, some of them use 12, or you can treat at any, um, any level of A1c? So that's, it's not limited to that. Is it the same in France, Catherine? Same in France, yeah. So you can treat a patient. So, because in I'm I'm asking this question because you know you work in London and in 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 Dijon in France, and you th th those are very special places where the government covers the social system, covers the medication. And but worldwide, in many places, they have restrictions regarding the A1C, for example, and they have to wait only until the A1C falls under a limit to start getting the treatment for the patients and. Uh, I think there's enough evidence to go against this, saying at any level of A1C, you will have a response, right? Yes, true, because if you are waiting for the A1C to, 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 come, to become normal, most, many patients are not treated because they are not able to, 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 to reach this, uh, this threshold. I don't know what kind of threshold, but uh, um, most patients have uh, A1C around eight, and uh, however, they can have good visual acuity. But it, it means that you, you should not delay the treatment, but in the same time, you should ask the patient to take care of um, the blood pressure, of uh, the A1C, of the lipidemia, of the lipids, and so on. So I think it's not, it's not fair to delay the treatment for this reason. Adnan? So with regards um, starting, not starting anti-VEGF at high HbA1Cs, that's a, a literal interpretation of the original pivotal trials. So it's understandable uh, why some countries have done that uh, as a way of rationing therapy. Um, there are some counter arguments to that. So the argument for it is that a patient's more likely to be motivated to control their diabetes once they've been limited 
to getting a therapy to improve their vision. The counter to that is that we've known for a very long time that if you suddenly improve your control, you actually get a, a transient worsening of your retinopathy status as you actually have reduced blood flow. And this has worked then in the 90s uh, in, in the Hammersmith Hospital and in other places. Um, you could rapidly control your blood pressure and renal function, which may well improve macular edema, but actually a sudden improvement in control of the HB or A1C may be counterproductive um, to the, the, the short-term care of your patient. So I don't think it is an ideal strategy. And I think there have been uh, sub-analysis to show uh, patients even with poor HB1Cs in, in the real world do respond well. Thank you for that, Adnan. So now let's move into another topic. We know that um, under treatment limits the potential for visual acuity gain in patients with DME. And uh, Catherine made it clear that within, uh, in France, they have almost no restrictions to treat the patients. And um, you have a restriction to enter for some of the patients, Adnan, uh, but then your second, third, fourth, and fifth injections will be uh, run by a separate set of rules. Do you have a fixed, any of you two have a fixed uh, uh, treatment regimen that is imposed by the system, or you can treat your patients with whichever regimen you would like to? Catherine? Um, no, we can use uh, the regimen we select, and uh, it depends on the patient. Uh, we are more and more comfortable with the treat and extent regimen to avoid under-treatment. Uh, it is easier for the patient, especially if you can perform the injections the same day as a visit to limit uh, the, the trip for the patient. Diabetic patients are usually working age population. So if you can decrease the burden for coming in, in the department of ophthalmology is better to uh, increase the compliance. But you still run a separate uh, or a different regimen for some. It's PRN, it's sorry, treat and extend for the majority, but some of them may be using other regimens. Yes, in some cases we can use PRN. Okay, and you treat and extend extending up to 16 weeks, 20 weeks? Usually we are, we are it's not exactly the same as in uh, AMD where we stick to uh, uh, injection every 12 or 16 weeks for one to two years when reaching this threshold. Uh, in DME, when we reach uh, three months, 12 weeks, uh, usually we, we try to, uh, to, to stop the treatment, but because sometimes it means that uh, we have solved the, 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 the problem. Excellent. And Adnan, is it um, the same situation in Morfields? So um, there is a guidance from NICE, um, but there's quite a lot of flexibility. So NICE in the original um, uh, Ranubizumab, the guidance was treat to stability, visual stability, uh, and then uh, PRN or extend out the treatment. Uh, and for ILEA, again, it mimicked the original product label from EMA at the time, which was uh, six injections and then two monthly up to a year, and then you could um, either PRN or treat and extend out after that. So by and large, we treat until we get a, what we feel is an anatomic response, and then we extend, extend it out, because there's sometimes a bit of a lag for visual acuity between that and anatomic response. Okay, and you would be probably extending by four and four weeks, or you go two by two? 
and what is the maximum time of extension? So um, typically it's about two week intervals. And again, when we get out to three months, we would then very similar to France, consider uh, the option of stopping the therapy and observing. Okay, so now we have discussed things that we probably used to do. Um, how, when do we start the treatment? What is the limit for waiting for a patient and the treatment regimen that we use and the treatments that we prefer for managing patients with uh, DME. But lately, uh, over the past almost two years, COVID has changed that situation uh, probably dramatically with uh, lockdowns and restrictions for patients uh, to move around, uh, restrictions in the hospital services, uh, less amount of doctors available to see the patient. How has these impacted on your diabetic patients? As Catherine said, diabetes, uh, diabetic macular edema is a condition that behaves completely different from uh, wet AMD. So it's a little bit more permissive regarding extending times in between injections. But, you know, the COVID was a, a long period of time of restrictions. Has this impacted much into your population of patients, Catherine? Well, we the recommendation from the French society was uh, to delay um, DME patients and uh, to treat only and to keep the treatment only for AMD patients. In our department, it was easier to, to keep uh, patient under treatment because we do not select a patient according to the disease. So we, we apply the same, in, the same interval as before and the patient come to, to have his injection, but uh, without any visual acuity measurement and without any uh, um, OCT uh, that was performed. So we apply the same regimen and the same interval for, for the, the lockdown period. And then we come back to our, our, our usual practice with visual acuity uh, and OCT when lockdown was finished. And we noticed that some did not come but most of them come. Okay, and, and Adnan, what was the situation at Moorfields? We were very quite similar uh, again to France in the initial first wave where um, we were recommended uh, to allow safe spacing for the neovascular AMD patients to continue treating as standard of care for neovascular AMD, but delay patients who are not urgent, i.e. didn't have coexisting proliferative disease who just needed anti-VEGF uh, until the end of the first wave. We also then virtualized um, some of their management for the diabetic patients where they would come in um, into a virtual clinic where they get a wide field picture under an OCT and, uh, and a visual acuity. Uh, we're now back to normal care. However, um, uh, similarly, many patients who are diabetic were initially afraid to come back, so there were a lot of DNAs, uh, and we have picked up a lot of patients who come back with, you know, proliferative disease, and so we had a bit of a rush of rubiotic and proliferative patients that we had to manage, um, uh, and also they were neglecting their care. So a lot of them were at home and overeating and overdrinking in the lockdown, so it was, it was quite an interest. Some of them actually had more exercise, some of them got a lot worse. A bit like us, I suspect. Yeah, I think it was the same situation for everybody. So doc doctors included, as you, as, as no. you mentioned. Uh, so any of these things that you have done during the pandemic, any of these uh, tricks that you have to resort to, to keep a good treatment of your patients, like the virtual clinics that you mentioned, is there anything that you're keeping for the 
aftermath of the pandemic? Is, is there anything that you say, this is something that we should have been doing uh, you know, long before? Adnan? Uh, so we already have a, um, like, uh, a very good national screening program for diabetic retinopathy, where once they get past a certain threshold, they get referred into hospitalized services. But we know that even if you have moderate non-proliferative and you know, minimal diabetic macular edema that's non-centre non involving, the risk of visual loss is still very low. And actually those patients we are now keeping into a virtual uh, setup, which is wide field imaging uh, and uh, OCT and visual acuity, um, but under the hospital care and then only bring them into a face-to-face -face clinic if the patient requests it or there, if there is progression where they would need active treatment. So that's freed up uh, some clinic space in the system. Catherine, anything that you kept from the uh, pandemic strategies to your day-to-day -day practice these days? Yes, probably to avoid um, visual acuity measurement at each visit. And we try to do it regularly, but not at each visit. And just to to base our treatment, uh, not to treat or not to treat only on the OCT analysis um, and to regularly measure the visual acuity. And also to, uh, to ask for the patient to, <laughs> this, this funny, but to, to, to come alone and not with uh, all the family around the patient. And it is very, very quiet in the, in the consultation now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. So we could be discussing all the management of patients with DME for days and, and days, but um, we need to uh, uh, close now. So that's it for this episode of the International Perspectives. And I would like to thank uh, our panelists, uh, Adnan Tufail in London and Catherine Crusoe garchet in uh, Dijon, France. Please be sure to subscribe to New Retina Radio on whatever podcast platform you use, and we will have more from this series coming in the near future. I am Patricia Schlopman from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>